Adam Ayad, 15, murdered by the occupation while defending the Dehesha refugee camp, left a note. I had a lot of dreams. I wish they would come true, but we are living in an occupied country that makes your dreams impossible. Settlers protesting this right-wing fascist government. At the same time, thousand-plus people in Masafar Yata are being ethnically cleansed. Uthman Jabarin, the grandfather of one of the families, said the occupation demolished our house in March, but we rebuilt it and they demolished it again. Having their daily life interrupted because their house is being demolished. And then when they try to move on, build a new house, it happens to them again and again and again. And they have nowhere to go because why would they go anywhere? Because they're from there. The crimes speak for themselves. Netanyahu's fascist program uses the word settlement in it. Unquestionable. A part of Judaism question exclusive right i think everybody else was hoping for more of an open relationship hello and welcome to episode 82 of the palestine pod the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with palestine from all over the world and bring you stories commentary and interviews with the aim of supporting the palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights i'm one of your hosts lara e you might know me from instagram as at gaz and girl and i'm joined by my co-host mikey b what's up y'all mikey b on tiktok michael Scherzer on instagram and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you believe that Wednesday Adams is the poster child of Hamas. Is posting decolonized Palestine the same thing as advocating for Hitler? Because it is if you write for the Times of Israel. <laughs> Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the palestinepod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episode, an additional podcast called the Patreon Pod, which is a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. Well, while the streets of occupied Palestine are awash with settlers protesting this new right-wing fascist government, at the same time, a thousand plus people in Masafar Yata are being ethnically cleansed. So as much as we do enjoy this show of political theater and solidarity, it would be great if they could act now. Yeah, the stories from Masafar Yata, I mean, honestly, are, are just getting more and more depressing each week. Uh-huh. Every day we see video of barren desert land with a few structures, modest structures, people living modestly. And it's always the Israeli government coming with bulldozers, with tanks, with full military regalia against like children and old people. It's a very disturbing scene that continues to play out Every single day, people have built up such a tolerance to Palestinian suffering that it's so easy for them to just scroll right on by, like the next video. These people are suffering every single day, and they're destroying schools. And like the teachers are protesting, they're still teaching the children in makeshift tents because that is the Palestinian spirit. But it's like, it shouldn't have to be that, right? It shouldn't have to be that there are There's literally no reason for them to keep destroying this stuff, right? They've declared it a firing zone, which, as we've talked about many times, is a tactical maneuver by the Israeli state to seize more Palestinian land. All a firing zone means is that the military, which fires everywhere in Palestine, is just going to be shooting guns there. And it's unsafe. It's unsafe anywhere anybody's shooting guns, obviously. So maybe just stop shooting guns. So the New Arab has been following the expulsions of uh, Palestinians in Masafariyata closely. On January 4th, they reported that the occupation demolished four houses and one agricultural barrack in Masafariyata. And the next day, on January 5th, they reported that the occupation issued a demolition order for a Palestinian house in Masafariyata. That house was in its last stages of construction. So this is what they do is they'll issue the demolition order right when the house is about to be ready for the family to move in. Not during the many months that the house itself was being built and the occupation was fully aware that there was a house being built there. They wait until the very end and then issue the demolition order. Just again, indicating how much cruelty every step of the way is being applied towards Palestinians. The the New Arab reported that that house 
for which the demolition order was issued, was supposed to become home to a Palestinian family of eight, including four children. And like every single time, the demolition order was issued for lack of a building permit, which, again, they use these very mundane sort of terms, you know, lack of a building permit. That sounds like you have a problem with the municipality. And that just sounds like this very mundane sort of problem that you would have, you know, in in, in any city with any sort of building and construction regulations or whatever it may be. But here the context is very different and we can't forget that. We can't forget that this order is being issued by a military occupation. We also can't forget that they have no right to sit here and tell Palestinians where they can and cannot build on their land. This is a foreign occupying power which is interfering with the daily lives of Palestinians on their own land and such an order should have absolutely no value whatsoever. And yet they continue to issue these demolition orders for Palestinians building and living on their own land. And they continue to demolish Palestinian homes for having not complied with their phony building regulations to begin with. It's a totally undeveloped desert area, right? Like who's building there but for Palestinians? How could you possibly be like, no, you can't build this? even though we're illegally occupying you and there's nobody else there, we have to get this fire guns there. How would that make sense to anybody anywhere else? Yeah. It makes no sense. It's inconceivable for anybody else. But for Palestinians, it's just a daily part of life. I just want to make another point about this. The family whose home was demolished January 4th, actually, it wasn't the first time that this had happened to them. One of the family members, Othman Jabarin, the grandfather of one of the families, came out and said, the occupation demolished our house in March, but we rebuilt it and they demolished it again. So we're talking about people who are having their daily life interrupted because their house is being demolished. And then when they try to move on, build a new house, carry on, keep, keep living, right? It happens to them again and again and again. And they have nowhere to go because why would they go anywhere? Because they're from there. I, I can't imagine what it's like... To be Palestinian in Masafariyata right now has to be the one of the most frustrating things. There is no good news coming out of Masafariyata. No good news coming out of other parts of Palestine as well. On the second day of 2023, two Palestinian youth were murdered by the occupation during a raid into Kafrdan to demolish their families' homes. The first martyr was Mohammed Hoshia, who was 22 years old. He was shot and killed in the early hours of January 2nd. And the second martyr was Fuad Abid, who's 25 years old, and he too was shot and killed by the occupation in the early hours of January 2nd as they raided his village. The next day on January 3rd, Adam Ayad, 15, was murdered by the occupation while defending the Daesha refugee camp during a pre-dawn raid. He was 15 and looks even younger than that. Adam actually left a note before he was killed by the occupation. And in the note, he wrote, I had a lot of dreams. I wish they would come true. But we are living in an occupied country that makes your dreams impossible. And after that, Hamer Abu Zaytun, 16, was murdered by the occupation in the Balata refugee camp, also during a pre-dawn raid. He was the fourth Palestinian to be martyred during the first week of 2023. He was shot in the head and killed by the Zionists. What's crazy about all these martyr killings is that they often take place during the Zionist pre-dawn raids, which is just yet another tactic of cruelty that they use against the Palestinian population, right? They come they come at you when they know you're going to be in your bed and you're going to be at home and you're going to be the most vulnerable. The place and time where you are inherently supposed to be the most safe, right? You know, in your bed at 3 a.m., you think nothing's going to happen to you here. You're supposed to be safe there. But that's exactly when they come for you. And all of these kids were were killed defending their homes. They were all killed defending their homes and defending their refugee camps, the places where they live from foreign occupying invasion. The circumstances of that, I think, should never be forgotten, that these kids were in their homes and they, in some cases, may have been resisting, in some cases may have been murdered and taken out before they could even do anything. But it should always be remembered that they were in their homes. They were taken in the moment when they were the most vulnerable and that if we were in their place, we would have done exactly the same thing, tried to defend our home, our families and our communities. I'd certainly like to think so. Because of this killing spree that the occupation has been on in the first week of 2023. This is just in line with the occupation's behavior for 2022, 
which was the year with the highest number of Palestinians killed in the occupied West Bank by the occupation since the Second Intifada. This is the highest number in 18 years. And the way that 2023 started, it seems like the occupation is going to maintain this very aggressive approach and perhaps outdo itself in 2023. Speaking of the Second Intifada, Ben Gavir just made a visit to Al-Aqsa, which was similar to Ariel Sharon's visit that kicked off the Second Intifada. It was a display of utter disrespect that Palestinians couldn't tolerate, and it was in conjunction with all of the other conditions of the occupation, the checkpoints, the murders, the you know displacement, the economic theft, and that visit created a powder keg that kicked off what we now know as the Second Intifada. And so the fact that Ben Gavir did it and that settlers do it all the time, settlers are taking like tours of the Al-Aqsa compound in a way that is just so flagrantly disrespectful to Palestinians. It come, they come in under the protection of the army. They antagonize the indigenous population, outwardly trying to provoke a reaction. And that's what Ben Gavir did as well. That's why he did it. It just shows that like how entrenched the occupation is that a thing which was unthinkable when Ariel Sharon did it has now become just another headline that people will not read. You know, it'll, it'll be just one more grievance that Palestinians have the international community largely doesn't care about. And even, and Palestinians are not in the same place where they can resist like full scale as they did. You know what I mean? Because the occupation has geared up militarily the, the divide between the resistance and the military occupation has grown deeper. Disadvantage that Palestinians are, are at is on full display because all they can do is watch in dismay as a thing that was once unthinkable has become a common day reality, right? I'm seeing elders in Al-Aqsa weeping because they never thought that they would see the day where settlers, where settler interior ministers of defense or whatever his fucking Looney Tunes title is today would make a visit casually to Al-Aqsa. All of these Islamic countries, allegedly Islamic countries, they're busy normalizing with the government. They're not going to say anything. They're busy getting weapons. They're busy getting intelligence. They're busy not getting assassinated. You're absolutely right that this is something that we see happening all the time now, right? I mean, yeah. how many times have we read the story that so-and-so stormed Al-Aqsa and it was or it wasn't followed with a period of resistance by the Palestinians in Jerusalem? I mean, that that very thing was one of the main events which kicked off all of the resistance in May 2021. And ever since then, it's been happening all the time. And here it, it, it has happened again, and the international community is standing by. Now, the UN Security Council convened for an emergency discussion over Ben Gavir's storming of Al-Aqsa Mosque on Thursday, January 5th. And, you know, like every time the UN convenes to discuss anything having to do with Palestine, some words were used, some stronger than others, right? The US definitely got the word two-state solution in there. And I kid you not, literally said that at, the, at, a, at a time when, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, Netanyahu has could not have made the intention for apartheid any more clear. Like he's just been running around screaming apartheid, apartheid, apartheid at the top of his lungs. And the U.S. is still for, you know, going forward with a two state solution. But the U.S. interjected two state solution during a U.N. break. Actually, <laughs> it wasn't even during session. They just said it in the court. Yeah, they just, in the court just is it anybody write that down? Right. Yeah. Um, two state so solutions. <laughs> <laughs> it's like who was that for the demons in your head like right well the 15 member security council convened uh, on january 5th to discuss 
the issue, Palestine's ambassador to the UN, Riyad Mansour, said that Al-Aqsa will not fall. It will stand for generations to come. It has outlasted Begin, Shamir, Sharon, and will outlast Netanyahu, Ben Gavir, and Erdan. Mansour said that Israel has no claim and no right to sovereignty over the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem, and there is therefore no rightful claim over Al-Aqsa. He added, in reference to the Israeli far right, listen to me carefully. The Security Council should stop you. It is their responsibility. It is the responsibility of this council and of all states to uphold international law and the historic status quo. The Security Council should stop you, but make no mistake, if they don't, our people will. And, you know, I don't usually like to quote from Palestinian political figures because we have talked extensively about how unhelpful and, in fact, harmful the Palestinian political apparatus is in this whole situation of occupation. But in this instance, I think he was, I I agree with him completely in that Palestinians are first and foremost, the ones who are taking their own liberation into their own hands, because they have seen how the international community has not aided them in these last few decades. And if anything, has only allowed the situation to persist and to become more aggravated. And so You know, we saw in May 2021 a period of intensified resistance in in, in response to this very same type of provocation. And mark my words, if these provocations on Al-Aqsa continue, combined with the occupation's daily killing of Palestinians and, and, you know, increased aggression on Palestinians all across Palestine, but especially in this case in the occupied West Bank, then we're going to see another resurgence. It's going to be May 2021, but it's going to last longer and it's going to be stronger. And that is just the absolutely obvious consequence of all of the violence that is being committed at the hands of the occupation. Zionists are going to take that clip and be like, she's threatening us. No, but see, here's the thing. I'm not a political analyst. I'm not a psychic. It's just anyone with two brain cells that is looking at the 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 daily aggression that Palestinians live under at the hands of the occupation can say that this is not sustainable and that because the occupation is getting more aggressive, the response is only going to be the same back, right? For every action, equal opposite reaction, right? That's what the Tindler Swindler said. So (laughs) did you watch that? No. Still Did he really okay. quote that? Is that his? <laughs> that was, I feel like that's not his original quote. It, it was not his original, but I'll. Ha- but every time the girls who gave him like money were like, "We're gonna come get our money," he was like, "Don't threaten me," because for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So mm, that's a that, good way of threatening someone without threatening them. <laughs> exactly. So that's how he would threaten them when they would threaten him. Nice. Take their shit back. I like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Things are getting so intolerable because this right-wing fascist government has created even a stir among the settler population inside of 48, right? You're seeing thousands of people come out protesting in the streets. And I kid you not, online, you're seeing Israelis, Zionists endorse BDS endorse a full boycott of the Netanyahu government. Oh, wow. That's from Reddit, okay? These are diehard, like, these are people who would be like, the Nakba never happened online, you know what I mean? But they are now saying things like, higher boycott of the government is required. Do not allow Bibi to be whitewashed. Condemn the Bibi government in its entirety. They're saying things like this, and it's like, are you guys on the board of BDS? Like, are you now, hey, hey, you know what's a great idea? Boycotting the government of Israel. <laughs> the Israelis thought of it. You know what I mean? Like, right. It's crazy that we had to get them to think it was their idea before they got on board with our idea. We, we just saw Netanyahu tweet uh, earlier this week the basic lines of the national government that w- that is going to be headed by him, right? And, and and this is just a tweet, right? He just tweeted for everyone around the world to read and understand and digest what he intends to do. It was just a blank sheet of paper that said, fuck Ghassan Kanafani. 
<laughs> you know, I wish. Uh, in- instead, he wrote, the Jewish people have an exclusive and unquestionable right to all areas of the land of Israel. Exclusive and unquestionable. The government will promote and develop settlement in all parts of the land of Israel, in the Galilee, the Negev, the Golan, Judea, and Samaria. Time travel is what they're saying. They figured out the technology. You know, space isn't enough. They are going through time now. So while they're going back to Judea, right? Thank you so much. much. It's a joke about their ridiculous lie from thousands of years ago. Okay. While the U.S. is sitting in front of the U.N. Security Council talking about two-state solution again and again and again and again, including this week, the leader of Israel has said, we have an exclusive right. So if they have an exclusive right to all this land, which, by the way, doesn't just include Palestine, right? All those regions that he referenced, parts of Syria are in there, parts of Lebanon are in there, right? So, you know, he's cooking up something else, right? Palestine's a big part of it, but it definitely creeps into the the sovereignty of other nations as well. At the same time that the U.S. is talking two-state solution, he just told you very explicitly what he intends to do. More settlement, and we have an exclusive right. So what does that mean for the millions of Palestinians who live in the land in which he says only Jewish people have an exclusive right to be in? This is not just Jewish people have the right to come live here. This is Jewish people have the right to come live here and only Jewish people can live here. But wait, there's a problem. There are millions of Palestinians currently in that land, not to mention the millions of Palestinians who are from that land, who were expelled from that land and who are prevented from returning to that land and are living in completely temporary and unsustainable living conditions in refugee camps. Those are another several million. The question that you just posed, like how is this situation going to be sustainable, was was put forth in like 1917 when somebody did a study on this. Like in Balfour times when they're like, yeah, Yeah. we're going to let the Jews have this land, right? And it's like, what about the local population? Are they going to like this? I mean, to me, this is indicative of something which is has been a shift, right, In, in, in a sense in the Israeli discourse. There was a time when Israeli leaders would occasionally try to placate the international community. They would say, oh, well, we're not going to come to the drawing table unless there's preconditions, but we want to negotiate, but they don't want to negotiate. And like they would just cook up a whole bunch of excuses for why the whole thing was stalled. But that, you know, we're not saying no, we're just saying not now. And, you know, this is very clear. It is extremely disingenuous for the United States or the international community for that matter to hear this statement and to not take swift and immediate action because what he is announcing is that every single day of the existence of this Israeli state is going to exist in stark violation of international law. That's what he's saying. He's saying every day I am now in power again, I am going to take aggressive steps to violate international law on a daily basis. And if the international community can't respond to that by making Israel accountable for its violations of international law, then what is the point of international law to begin with? If we are not going to sanction human rights abusers and violators of international law, then throw the whole system away. What's it good for? Guy who has come out and said, I fully intend to break the law every single day in my, you know, in, in in this term that I am now going to serve, he's not sugarcoating anything. He's not hiding anything. He's not even faking. He's not even trying to fake that maybe he's interested in peace. He's saying those millions of Palestinians that live in this land now, well, good fucking luck because you don't have a right to be here and someone else has an exclusive right to be here in your place. And you can't question it. Unquestionable. Unquestionable. Right. Isn't that sort of a strange prerequisite a part of judaism questioning right (laughs) jews love questions okay but apparently this unquestionable exclusive right exclusive i think everybody else was hoping for more of an open relationship right or something (laughs) along those lines right um but he said exclusive so you know old-fashioned he is also currently under investigation for more eruption and then, isn't it wild? In like the 1940s, the, there were a bunch of like Arab leaders who were like, hey, 
we are worried that this group of people, if you empower them, will then steal a bunch of our land and murder a bunch of our people. And then they were like, no, I promise that won't happen. And then that's exactly what happened. Isn't that weird? Isn't it crazy how everybody predicted this would happen? Yes, the King Crane Commission, officially called the 1919 Inter-Allied Commission on Mandates in Turkey, was a commission of the inquiry concerning the disposition of areas within the former Ottoman Empire. And it also stated about Palestine, touring Syria and Palestine between June 10th and July 21st, 1919, and soliciting petitions from local inhabitants, the commission found that 72% were hostile to the Zionist plan for a Jewish national home in Palestine. Such findings, coupled with Zionist talk of dispossession of the Arabs, led the commission to advise a serious modification of the Zionist immigration program in Palestine. They asked the locals what they thought, and most people were like, I'd rather not give up my home, which I think is pretty fair, honestly, pretty fair stance to have. And then the Zionists received that data, you know what I mean? Because nothing stops them. They're, they're getting that data, even them. And they were like, got it, we'll have to go in violently. People will not be amenable to this like, what did he call it? Not roundabout, but surreptitious, maybe? What did, what did Herzl say? Both the process of expropriation and the removal of the poor must be carried away discreetly and circumspectly. That's what he said, circumspectly. Also, it's interesting to note that he said the poor, right? Like economically disadvantaged people who are vulnerable, don't have much means to fight back, right? First of all, acknowledges that people were there, right? Tough, tough for their narrative. Also, that they are at a disadvantage. Sounds like Masafriyata right now. Yeah, your whole point about how people have known that this, you know, setting up a whole settler colony on top of a land that belongs to another people where they already are was going to cause problems. And people have been saying this ever since the beginning of the project. Reminded me of a post I saw earlier this week from the Palestinian Feminist Collective. On January 4th, they posted about the 91st anniversary of the first Palestinian Arab Youth Congress, which took place in Yaffa, Palestine, on January 4th, 1932. So well over, you know, beyond a decade before the settler colony was established in Palestine, 200 Palestinian youth gathered in Yaffa, Palestine to discuss organizing strategies against Zionist land annexation and settlement policies and the British colonial presence. The participants exchanged ideas on how to invigorate youth participation in the growing Arab national movement in Palestine and even adopted a national charter calling for a unified Arab effort to achieve independence. So Palestinians were organizing about independence and how to have an independent Palestine well before the Zionist project was established on their land. They had a strong sense of national identity well before the Zionist project was established on their land. That Congress resulted in the formation of the Palestinian Youth Party, which by 1934 had expanded to thousands of members and was operating with dozens of local branches all across historic Palestine. A few years later, in May 1936, 600 Palestinian schoolgirls convened to discuss strategies for increased participation of girls within Palestine's youth movement during the Great Revolt. So we've been organizing for as long as these settlement plans have been cooking. Like we've been fully aware and fully involved in taking ownership over the, the, you know, our own liberation from the very beginning. The fact that the settler colonial project was established in any event is not a testament to the fact that we weren't against it from the very beginning and that we weren't constantly looking for ways to organize and to strategize and to mobilize and to get people involved because we saw that our land was going to be taken from us before our eyes. And speaking of longstanding commitments to the cause, Palestinian prisoner Karim Yunus was just freed from Israeli dungeons after sacrificing 40 years 
of his life in prison. The 66-year-old Palestinian political prisoner and elder won his freedom after 40 years imprisoned by the occupation. In an effort to suppress celebration of his release, the occupation released Kareem before dawn. They love a before dawn, right? Oh, they they murder before dawn, they release you before dawn, and dropped him off at a bus station without any notice to his family. He borrowed a cell phone from somebody who passed by in order to reach his family and make it home. Upon reuniting with them, Kareem visited the cemetery where his mother, who died this past May, was buried. His petition to be released so that he could see her before she died was denied by the occupation. In a message of steadfastness, Yunus, one of the longest-serving Palestinian political prisoners alongside Na'il Barghouti, declared, 40 years have passed, and I am prepared to sacrifice another 40 years for the freedom of our people. This post was created by friend of the show, Wall Palestine. Sometimes the, the, the occupation will do things that are just so absurd that, you know, it's funny, right? And, and here they actually made sure to visit his family before he was released and told them not to mark the occasion of his release. So Israeli military intelligence visited Karim Yunus's family and said, do not celebrate his release. And his family was like, okay, but they did celebrate. Sounds his good, release. bud. <laughs> you know, like, that sounds like a hall monitor. Be like, hey, hey, you, you guys aren't supposed to smoke weed. You know that. And it's like, okay, bud, we get it. You do your job, which is being sucking the soul and fun out of any possibility we have here and we will continue to ignore you sounds good but it also just goes to show you know there are moments when we see the fragility of the occupation right yes when all the the guns and the drones and the tanks can't protect it from its fragility because it's built on lies and it's moments like this when they'll go to a political prisoner's family's house moments before they release him and say hey 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 don't celebrate this guys because if you do what would happen? Because here's that, 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 I think that's the follow-up question, is if they celebrate, what will happen? You're going to mobilize Palestinians. You might even get some news coverage. Somebody's going to report on it. The fact that, you know, the family celebrated his release. He's a, he's a, he's a Palestinian political prisoner that's been held for 40 years, the longest held prisoner by the occupation. And somebody might dare cover his story. And that might potentially garner Palestinian sympathy in the public space. Some people might hear about Palestine that haven't before. And if they do, well, that's bad news for the occupation, which doesn't need, can't afford for people, for more people around the world to find out about the Palestinian story and understand what we are going through and what we are experiencing at the hands of this 70 plus year occupation. Yeah, they don't want anybody to start questioning their unquestionable right to settle. Right, right. Why was he in jail for 40 years? Who <laughs> he questioned, knows? <laughs> he questioned. He questioned the unquestionable. That sounds like a warlock, you know? Like that sounds like something a mythical character would say to stop somebody who's like, what are your credentials? In Kerim Yunus's case, he was arrested and charged with killing an Israeli soldier in the occupied Syrian Golan Heights in 1983. Now, I, I don't know whether or not he did it, and I'm not going to speak to, and I'm not going to speculate on whether or not he did it. Let's assume that he did do it. <laughs> the Golan Heights are occupied land under international law, and occupied people have the right to resist by any means necessary under international law. Furthermore... Golan Heights is Syria, which means it's outside their jurisdiction. Right. I mean, it's just like Palestine, right? They, they, they just claim it. And so, and if he did this, if he did resist by targeting an Israeli soldier, it's a military act, right? It's an At act least it wasn't a 16-year-old girl. Or like the long list of martyrs that we read about every day. They're just kids. They're youth. One of our most esteemed journalists, Shireen Abuakla, or any number of journalists who they murder all the time. It's like, I've never seen an entity that is more violent and more insecure than this settler colony, right? It just constantly gobbles up other people's lives, their things, their dreams, their hopes, their desires, 
And then as fragile as could be, a party, a parade could shatter the whole system. So much so that their secret service has to try and do back channeling to mitigate any possible good news coming out of Palestine, right? Zionists hate good news for Palestinians. No good news. That's their mantra, right? If there is good news, we'll kill somebody. We'll add to the news cycle. Yeah, definitely. It also reminds me of, I think it was a couple weeks back, we saw that the Israeli police in 48 tried to cancel Tamar Nafar's show mid-show. They tried to shut it down while it was happening. And then what ended up happening was a video was published online of the Israeli police trying to shut down the show. And not only did the show end up continuing, but then the video went viral and just made them look ridiculous. It's called the Barbara Streisand effect. Right. Where it's like, you know, you're bringing attention to a thing that you're trying to suppress. And in doing so, you actually boost it. Yep. Right. It's sort of how the Zionists lifted me up to a place where Palestinians were seeing my videos because they right. were hate commenting a bunch of stuff, calling me all types of names initially. And, uh, you know, they still do, but it's just they've calmed down. They're also like, oh, he's not going to stop, you know, like, oh, yeah, they realized they were yeah. like, OK, maybe if we just go yes. hard, then he will stop and back down. But it's yeah. like now you're not worth their time. They realize that, like, they can only try and mitigate my message. Right. They can't stop me. And so it's the same type of thing where it's like anytime there is any bit of joy or resistance, they just try and mitigate it because they know they can't stop it. Can't stop, won't stop. Rockefeller Records, baby. Settlers vandalized the graves in a Jerusalem cemetery. These are supposedly Jews, supposedly the chosen people. And if you're listening to them, God hates headstones. You know, look, the desecration of graves, I think, is one of the lowest out of all the ways that you can be destructive or violent. Taking it out on headstones, right? What's your problem? The problem is that those headstones challenge the narrative that there was nobody there or if there was somebody there, they ran away, right? Because those people died there where they right. were born. And right. so the headstones are a constant reminder that they are living a lie. Yes. That they are participating in a mass scheme to steal land from indigenous people, to harass and destroy the lives of people. If you're destroying their life while they're alive, why wouldn't you desecrate a headstone once they're already dead? Right. What's the harm for you? reminds me also of a very helpful meme that I came across uh, on Twitter about the eight stages of white settler colonial denial, which applies perfectly to the Zionist narrative, right? Stage one, they didn't exist. They will engage with us in conversation, talking to Palestinians, telling us how we don't exist, right? Stage one, they don't exist. Stage two, if they did, they weren't here. Okay, they did exist, but they weren't particular. They weren't here. They were over there. Stage three, if they were here, they didn't use the land, right? That's the doctrine of discovery, right? That's actually a very funny one, just because Palestinians, farmers, historically, <laughs> yeah, right? Like right? The port of Gaza was internationally known. <laughs> People were talking about the wine in the yeah. times of like Herodotus. But yeah, right. go ahead. Okay. Sounds good. Stage four, if they did use the land, they didn't deserve the land. Stage that five. right there is the unquestionable, <laughs> right? That is the unquestionable question. Yeah, yeah because they, they deserve who deserves the land, right? That's the unquestionable edict sent out by their most recent czar. Yeah, exactly. Stage five, if they did exist and if they did use the land, it doesn't matter because they lost it, right? This is the whole, you lost the war, you know, the Vin Arfu, so you lost the war, right? I'll never- You lost! <laughs> I'll never you lost! Him telling us about how yeah. his friends are like, well, they lost the war, right? So that's the whole, you lost And that's war. actually, there's honestly, that happens in the United States too. I saw that with people celebrating Thanksgiving. I thought it was a very careless and tasteless take where they were just like, you lost, I like turkey, we're gonna have a good time and drink. Right. And I was like, look, you could just drink and shut up. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to be like... Stage six. If they didn't lose the land, well, it doesn't matter anymore, right? That's the whole notion of... Get over it and eat hummus. That's the whole notion of like, well, we have sovereignty now, so it's ours now. Okay, so it doesn't matter anymore. Now we're here just like sort of 
it's after the fact, it's facts on the ground, we're here. Stage seven, if it does matter, we need to move on. So it's like, okay, maybe it, okay, maybe it mattered before, but it doesn't matter anymore. We need to move on. Right. And this is, of course, a denial of the fact that violations of indigenous rights require justice and redress. You can't just decide that the issue is closed and that there doesn't need to be any justice for the wrongs that were committed in the past and continue to be committed. And finally, stage eight. If we can't move on, then we are you. That's the self-indigenization. That's them yeah. saying they are us. They are the indigenous ones. Somebody said that Zionism needs to constantly reinvent itself in order to maintain relevance and like appeal to a modern audience, right? Because if you had a bunch of people on Twitter being like, the poor native people need to be circumspectly robbed of their land like, <laughs> right everybody would be like yo what the fuck is up with this guy <laughs> right right not but relevant to the time right now not the way you we have talk a, now now you have a bunch of people who are like we are the indigenous population we're decolonizing we are native judeans and it's like yeah you guys are chameleons you have adapted to the speak the the lexicon, the vocabulary of a modern social justice perspective in order to appeal palatable to a wider audience. Y'all went in with that, you know, we got a murder and stuff that was like real hot back then. Like what, what was hot in the 40s, can't, you can't mix it back up with what's going on right now. Yes. And, you know, I actually saw a Zionist try to use that as a justification for why Zionist quotes from the late 1800s, the first half of the 20th century should be irrelevant, right? They were like, oh, well, uh, it's obvious that Jewish people just adopted the language of the time so that they could establish, you know, their liberation movement. And that doesn't mean that the liberation movement itself is defunct or, you know, problematic. And it's like, no, actually, it's the opposite. It's the fact that you're not actually assessing what is being done in the service of or for in order to establish this project you're putting all that aside and you're just trying to say hey no no it's good and just believe me on that just trust me don't 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 try to look any further at what are the consequences of what we're doing on this land just take my word for it that it's fine and when all those zionists way back when were using really problematic language just take my word for it that they were just trying to fit in and use the language of the time so that they could establish this really awesome thing is that more likely is that the more likely scenario or is it that the ideology itself is problematic because it keeps producing disastrous consequences for humans and the environment. And it's like, yeah, Herzl just wrote to his colonial mass murder buddy, Cecil Rhodes, to appeal for his support because like he was doing a bit. He was a character. He was just adapting to the language of mass murder to get the support of the occupation of Palestine. And speaking of like cloaking yourself in social justice terms and ideology, there's this person, I believe, on Instagram. They said, and I quote, anti-Zionism uses the mask of respectability to attack Jews in places they have come to see as their homes, places which they have helped build and in which they are indeed overrepresented academia, campuses, social justice circles, the media, and which they do not want to leave. And like domestic violence is not always lethal, but its wounds, because they are from within, go to one's very soul. And like domestic violence, gaslighting is a frequent strategy to shield the abuser from consequences. This individual, has compared anti-Zionism to domestic violence. I want to read this again because this person actually engages in anti-Semitism in this post, right? Attack Jews in places they have come to see as their home, places which they have helped build and which they are indeed overrepresented. Academia, campuses, social justice circles, 
the media and which they do not want to leave. That sentence says that according to, I think, Ina, she said there are too many Jews in academia, too many on campuses, same thing, by the way, too many in social justice circles, and too many in the media. And what's crazy is instead of being like, this woman is a wild anti-Semite, lump her in with Kanye, there are a bunch of verified Zionists in her comments being like, Yas Queen, stolen from black people. You got it again. Another win on point as usual. You know what I mean? There's there's nothing but support for this open anti-Semitism that's being used by Zionists to attack anti-Zionism and compare it to domestic violence. And then they said that the Palestinian cause is the side that gaslights. Have you ever been accused of gaslighting by a gaslighter? That's what gaslighters do. <laughs> that's what they do. And, and that's why I always say, go back to the consequences of the implementation of the Zionist project. If there are millions of Palestinians outside of Palestine telling you that they were expelled from Palestine and that they're in refugee camps because somebody murdered their family and took over their home, maybe believe them because they are literally the living proof of the crime which was committed. If there's yeah. millions of, of of Jewish people who are living in that land currently and who, who themselves say the land is theirs, but they also are holding a passport from another country being like, oh yeah, this is my land, but also I'm Russian, Polish, whatever it may be, Lithuanian. I, I come from here. I come from there. Maybe it's not their land because they come from somewhere else. Like, just make it simple. It is simple. My grandparents are Palestinian, but they're not in Palestine, not by choice. And they can't go back, not by choice. And that is the case of millions and millions and millions of Palestinians across the world. We didn't choose this outcome. It was imposed on us. And it was imposed on us with violence. And it continues to be imposed on us with violence. Those Palestinians that are being expelled from Masafariyata right now as we speak, they're not trying to leave Masafariyata. They're trying to live in their land. See it also continuing to happen on a daily basis? Is it more likely that everything that we said in the past was true? Because it's also happening right now. Just look at the Palestinians whose homes are being demolished today and look who's demolishing the homes. The crimes speak for themselves. And the settlement project speaks for itself. It is a settlement project. Netanyahu's fascist program uses the word settlement in it. He says we will promote settlement in all of these areas. He is clearly indicating that the project requires settlement. It requires settlement of people from the outside. That is the whole point of it. And why do they have to settle from the outside? Because they're not there. Uh, Hasbara, Hasbara actually called Netanyahu anti-Semitic for calling it settlement. Oh, that's a oh, joke. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, there anyone. Is they might, right? They might. Capable. They might be like, we have the unquestionable and unalienable right to set up tents. That's that they want that distinction. They don't want the word settlement to decolonize with a bulldozer to to decolonize with a firing zone. Right. We're decolonizing with a firing zone to express my nativity by expelling indigenous people. That reminds me of the headline about Gal Gadot, the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's, it's old. It's from. 2021. But apparently she was selected to host a show on displaced indigenous people by National Geographic. Was it about Palestine? No. Oh, uh, well, that is awkward. Yeah. Over there, they steal your land. They steal your life. They steal your dreams, right? But here, they steal your time. They steal your energy. They Livelihood make it so that you spend your time thinking about how to protect yourself, how to protect your family, how to protect your livelihood. It happens even at the highest levels. So imagine what happens to individual Palestinians, like no backing of a machine or a system to help them out, right? We, we saw it at Harvard just recently, at Harvard Kennedy School. Roth told The Guardian that his first inkling that something was wrong came in a video conference call to introduce himself to Elmendorf. Quote, we had a perfectly pleasant chat for about half an hour or so, but towards the end, he asked the question, do you have any enemies? And I said, I've got many. That's a hazard of the trade. But what he was clearly driving at was Israel. He didn't want to hear about how I've been sanctioned by China, sanctioned by Russia, or attacked by Rwanda or Saudi Arabia. He wanted to know what was my position on Israel. 
said Roth. Isn't it interesting how when you speak about Palestine online, Zionists will flood your comments being like, what about Russia? What about China? <laughs> what about Saudi Arabia? And then when they're in private meetings, determining whether or not people get positions of power, they're like, what about Israel? Yeah, they don't want to hear about Russia or China or Saudi Arabia in those moments. What do they call that, right? They call it singling out, I believe. They say you're singling us out because we're Jewish. That's the only reason, right? That is it. And then in interviews where they determine whether or not you'll move forward, they're singling out Israel. Roth, in speaking to The Guardian, said that he falsely assumed that the dean of the Kennedy School valued academic freedom. He said, maybe I'm naive in retrospect, but I assume that criticism of Israel as criticism of any other government is just par for the course. That's what a leading foreign policy center does. And it's true that, you know, Human Rights Watch issues reports that are critical of the actions of governments all across the world. And the fact that it was his criticism of Israel, which was the reason why he'll no longer be able to take this position at Harvard, speaks volumes for what type of trouble it can get you in to point out that human rights of Palestinians are being violated. And this goes back to the very beginning of the episode with your Mikey Intifada when Jenna Ortega came out and was like, hey, Palestinians should have human rights. And all the headlines were like, you know, the, the newspaper, social media, all of it was flooded with who's a worse anti-Semite, Jenna Ortega or Kanye West. And it's like, you can't even say Palestinians deserve human rights without being instantly smeared as an anti-Semite. And imagine if you're a Palestinian who's literally just sitting here trying to advocate for trying for, for just existing to constantly have that, you know, thrown at you is very heavy because you're just trying to exist as a person. It seems to me that if you're engaged in apartheid and somebody says, hey, that's apartheid, the easier thing to do would be to stop doing the apartheid. But that's not what the apartheid state does, right? The apartheid state is like, okay, how can we stop this person from having a platform? How can we stop people from listening? It's like when they went to the family of Eunice, right? They were like, do not celebrate this joyous occasion. They know that they are on a sinking ship. And so instead of addressing the fact that their ship is sinking, they just continue to take on more water and try and plug the holes as they come every day. Exactly. The ship is sinking. And... It's only a matter of time until you all realize. Until there's nowhere left to plug. You can't plug a boat with a rifle. <laughs> right. Maybe that's the title of the episode. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Please check out our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Find us online on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and look for us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. That has been another episode of the pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. Doo -doo.